great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A. You are listening to the Already Gone podcast, sharing stories of the missing, the murdered, the mysterious, and the lost. If you aren't familiar with my home state, you may not know that Michigan is divided in two, a lower peninsula that's shaped like the back of your left hand, and the upper peninsula, a long, narrow piece of land connected to Lower Michigan by the Mackinac Bridge. The mighty Mac, as the bridge is known, runs from Mackinac City in the Lower Peninsula to St. Ignace, five miles north in the Upper Peninsula. Up until this point, the Michigan-based cases I've covered were all from the Lower Peninsula. The Upper Peninsula, or UP as she's known, makes up one-third of the land mass in Michigan, but has only 3% of the population. It's connected to Canada on the north end and Wisconsin on the west. The UP is known for logging, mining, and tourism. Many of the towns in the Upper Peninsula were created around the copper and iron mines. In the 1930s, executives from the mining companies were looking for faster, more efficient ways to get to Detroit or Chicago. And in 1937, an airstrip was constructed just south of Marquette. With the advent of World War II, there was increasing concern about defending the Great Lakes, a transportation hub that moved supplies and munitions out of Milwaukee, Chicago, Cleveland, and Detroit. The U.S. Air Force stepped in and converted the airstrip near Marquette into the K.I. Sawyer Air Force Base. The base was named for Kenneth Ingalls Sawyer, the former road commissioner of Marquette, who first envisioned the airstrip. After World War II, the base remained in use as the U.S. Air Force was expanding. In 1950, hundreds of airmen and their families lived on and around the base. In 1952, Lieutenant Coleman Peterson returned home to find his wife, Charlotte, bruised and battered. Peterson demanded an explanation for her condition. Charlotte began to cry, and she told him the whole story. While her husband was on base, Charlotte consoled herself with a few drinks at the Lumberjack Tavern, a local bar. When last call rolled around, she found herself alone with the barkeep, a short, solidly built former cop named Mike Chenoweth. Chenoweth offered her a ride home, then pulled the car onto a secluded logging road where he forced himself on her. When she resisted, he struck her until she complied. Peterson was livid about the assault on his wife. He grabbed his handgun and rushed out of the house, drove through the darkness of that July night to Chenoweth's business. Peterson confronted Chenoweth and shot the barkeep in the chest. When Chenoweth collapsed, Peterson leaned over the bar and emptied his sidearm into him. While the murder occurred in Big Bay, Michigan, the trial would be held in the county seat of Marquette. 25 miles southeast of the scene of the crime. 
When her husband was arrested, Charlotte Peterson called former county prosecutor John Volker and asked him to defend her husband. Volker had lost his position as county prosecutor in the last election, and while he still took on legal work, he spent most of his time fishing, hunting, and enjoying all that the wild surrounding Marquette offer. He wasn't certain he was ready to suit up and return to court again, especially on such a big case and on the other side of the aisle. For this high-profile case, the state of Michigan sent a prosecutor up from the state capitol in Lansing. After meeting with his client and his wife and learning the circumstances of the murder, Volker put forth a risky temporary insanity defense called irresistible impulse. The irresistible impulse defense hadn't been used in Michigan in almost 70 years. But his client was a sympathetic one, a man who served his country both in World War II and the Korean conflict, a man defending the honor of his wife. The jury, made up of Marquette natives, liked the defense. Coleman was found not guilty by reason of insanity, and just weeks after the trial, Coleman was pronounced healthy and released. The Colemans packed up and quickly and quietly left town, without paying Volker for his services. In 1955, Volker decided to write about the murder, the events leading up to it, and his story included that Charlotte Coleman liked to drink and dance at the bars without her husband. Remember, in the 1950s, rape was usually the fault of a misbehaving woman, not blamed on the actions of a violent man. Volker's book, written under his pen name, Robert Traver, entitled Anatomy of a Murder, was a hit selling 300,000 copies. Rights to the book were picked up by celebrated Hollywood director Otto Preminger. Preminger visited Marquette and fell in love with the city. He decided to film on location and brought stars like Jimmy Stewart, Lee Remick, George C. Scott, Ben Gazzara, and Duke Ellington to the Upper Peninsula. Ellington created the soundtrack and made a cameo appearance in the film. Preminger took the unusual step of filming inside the Lumberjack Tavern in Big Bay, Michigan. This was the first time a movie filmed a scene at the actual scene of a crime. Anatomy of a Murder was a rousing success and earned seven Oscar nominations, including nods for Jimmy Stewart and newcomer George C. Scott. To this day, people come to Marquette, Big Bay, and nearby Ishpeming to see the locations used in filming. If you're feeling morbid, or maybe just thirsty, you can belly up to the bar where Peterson gunned Chenoweth down. The Lumberjack Tavern is still open for business. The Petersons divorced in the late 1950s. I've been unable to learn what became of Charlotte Ann Peterson after the divorce, but Coleman Peterson lived his last days in warm Texas sunshine. He died in 1977. Oh, sure. Fine, fine. Now, Lieutenant, there are four ways I can defend murder. Number one, it wasn't murder. It's suicide or accidental. Number two, you didn't do it. Number three, you were legally justified, like the protection of your home or self-defense. Number four, the killing was excusable. Well, where do I fit into this rosy picture? I'll tell you where you don't fit. You don't fit in any of the first three. 
But why? Why wouldn't I be legally justified in killing the man who raped my wife? Time out. Now, if you'd caught him in the act, the shooting might have been justified, but you didn't catch him in the act. With a population of 21,000, Marquette is the largest city in the Upper Peninsula, and the population hasn't changed much since 1988, when our story is set. Marquette is a college town, home to Northern Michigan University, and when the students arrive in the fall, the city's population climbs by several thousand. One of the popular destinations in Marquette, which is the name of both the city and the county it sits in, is Presque Isle. Presque Isle translates to almost island. Presque Isle is a 323-acre park on a peninsula that juts north into Lake Superior. It was originally used as a lighthouse station to guide ships making their way through the Great Lakes. There is a road from the city of Marquette into the park, and today the park has picnic areas, hiking trails, playgrounds, a band shell, and fields. There are several good places for fishing as well. The park is home to rare albino deer, as well as dozens of other species of animals. It's a great place to observe and connect with nature. There's also a large marina and, of course, the Upper Harbor Lighthouse. While Marquette is the largest community in the Upper Peninsula, it's still a small town. And in 1988, it wasn't too different from other small towns in the way that it viewed outsiders, which includes those who are different. Our victim, Paul Gerard, was known in the community as a gay man, and it was not to his benefit. As a note to listeners, some of the terminology and phrasing you hear in this episode is taken directly from news stories at the time. So if something sounds outdated, that's why. Gerard's neighbors complained about him, saying that people were often leaving his house at odd hours, and sometimes locals would harass him by calling him names or shouting insults in his direction or at his modest home on Division Street. Gerard didn't let the harassment get to him and went on about his business, working, spending time with his friends, and remaining close to his family. Paul had a job working at a rental shop where he repaired small engines. The money he made at the shop wasn't a fabulous income, but he did all right. By late September 1988, classes were in session at Northern Michigan University. Gerard was known to pick up men from the university at local bars and take them somewhere more private. In 1988, discretion was important. Around 3 a.m. on September 30th, Paul Gerard was spotted at a gas station on the south end of the city. He was last seen, by himself, getting into his blue Honda. This was the last time he would be seen alive. Paul Gerard was murdered at approximately 4 a.m. on September 30th. His body would be discovered around 10 a.m. that day. The 34-year-old had been stabbed 40 times, his throat slashed. Many of the wounds were post-mortem the killer fueled by adrenaline and rage. Gerard's body was found just a few feet away from the large stone marking Charlie Kabogam's gravesite. Near his body, police found his glasses and a folding knife. It appears that there was a struggle and Paul went for his knife to defend himself, but he didn't have a chance to open it and fight back. They found his light blue Honda parked in a lot not far from where he was found. Missing from the bloody scene were his wallet and car keys, but robbery was never thought to be a motive for the attack. On October 1st, 1988, Paul's death was the top story in the local paper, 
and the front page shouted, Gay Community Shocked by Murder. The headline was the attention-grabber the newspaper hoped for. The community, particularly the locals, were abuzz with speculation about the crime. Some thought he propositioned the wrong man, while others speculated that a couple of locals cornered him and did him in. Paul Gerard was more than a victim. He was a brother and a son and a friend. Gerard was one of three children. He had two sisters, Sue and Mary. He grew up in a Catholic family. The Gerard home was a small farm where they had some livestock and a garden to provide extra food for the dinner table. From a young age, Paul worked with his dad at a sawmill on the property and took to fixing things. His sisters fondly recall their brother that he was affectionate, generous, and kind. Gerard's brutal murder led to a huge response from local law enforcement. This was the first murder in Marquette since 1985, and police recognized it as a hate crime. Someone had targeted Gerard because he was a gay man. In 1988, hate crime legislation was not yet in existence. The Hate Crime Statistics Act would not be law until April of 1990, when President George Herbert Walker Bush signed off on it. Marquette Police Detective Mike Angeli said, quote, Because of Gerard's gay lifestyle, he was well known to police. He was often victimized by those that opposed the way he lived. Every detective in Marquette worked this case. The entire month of October was spent running down leads and processing evidence from the scene, and police had a lot of evidence to process, including fingerprints, footprints, fibers, and blood evidence. Lower priority crimes, like bad checks and break-ins, they were pushed aside. This case was the top priority and focus for Marquette PD. Captain Sal Sarvello told the local paper, the Marquette Mining Journal, that police were working with assistance from the State Police Crime Lab in Marquette, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation was called in. Cervello declined to specify what kind of support the FBI was providing. Experts from the University of Michigan, downstate Ann Arbor, were also consulted. On October 12, 1988, police released a description of their suspect, a white male, 20 to 25 years old, with dark curly hair, a full mustache. He was wearing a dark jacket and tan pants. On the night of the murder, someone matching this description was seen on foot leaving Presque Isle around 4.30 a.m. By the end of October, a $2,000 reward was posted for information leading to the arrest of the person responsible for Gerard's brutal slaying. Sarvello and fellow detective Hank Steed were heading up the investigation. In November of 1988, they told the Mining Journal that they felt tremendous pressure to find the perpetrator. They spoke of their frustration at receiving bad information or misleading information about the case. Marquette is a college town, and thousands of students arrive each fall and stay through the long, snowy winter. An unsolved murder was not what the families of students wanted to hear. The pressure that the detectives work under was unrelenting. Gerard's case would be the largest investigation ever undertaken by the Marquette Police Department. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough. Gerard's killer would not be named, and he would not be arrested. 
In January of 1989, three months after Gerard's murder, police downstate in Kalamazoo shared information on a similar slaying. A murder that occurred within days of the Presque Isle murder, a stabbing of an openly gay man. The victim in Kalamazoo received over 100 stab wounds. The investigating agencies compared notes and ruled out a connection between the murders. In April of 1989, police receive a tip leading them to a local man to interview about Gerard's murder. The interview is promising, and the local man becomes the primary suspect. Unfortunately, there isn't evidence connecting him to the crime scene, and the mining journal identified him only as someone who lives and works in Marquette County. In May of 1989, both the mayor of Marquette, Robert Buzz Berube, and the police chief, George Johnson, weigh in. They know police have a suspect, and Berube cautions locals not to speculate or spread rumors. Chief Johnson was quoted as saying that the department will continue to investigate the case and follow up on tips as they come in. In July of 1989, there was another article in the paper. This time, the Detroit-based Michigan Lesbian Gay Anti-Violence Project was decrying Gerard's murder, pointing out that gays and lesbians are often subject to violence that isn't reported, and if it is reported, it's not investigated. Spokesman for the group, Mark Loveless, said he couldn't single out the Marquette Force specifically because he wasn't familiar with their investigation. Detective Steed responded to his comments, saying that he agreed Gerard's lifestyle led to his death, but it did not impact the way Marquette police investigated the crime. Months passed, and then years. The Gerard case went cold. It wasn't forgotten. A town like Marquette doesn't see enough violent crime to make a case like this fade from memory. Gerard's killer was clever enough, or more likely lucky enough, not to leave evidence behind that would lead back to him. Every few years, the case appears in the paper once again. In 2008, on the 20th anniversary of his death, the Mining Journal brought out another story. They interviewed Sal Sarvello. He was one of the lead detectives on the case. Eventually, he was promoted to police chief, and by 2008, he was retired. Sarvello addressed one of the big issues of the case, the setting of the murder. In the middle of the night, in a public park off one of the Great Lakes, it's not the ideal setting for preserving evidence, nor are there any witnesses around to report on what they saw. Sarvello noted that Marquette has only two unsolved murders, Paul Gerard from 1988 and the 2000 murder of Aaron Taylor. Quote, I would have given anything to have those two unsolved murders closed before I left just for the sake of the families involved. Mike Angeli was on the case in 1988 when the murder happened and now works as the city manager of Marquette. Angeli believes the killer acted alone, but later bragged to others about the crime. In 2017, we are almost 30 years from Gerard's murder. Someone could be ready to come forward with a tip about the case. Someone has the information that law enforcement needs to bring a killer to justice. Mm -hmm. 
In the three decades since Paul Gerard's death in a college town in northern Michigan, many things have changed. His parents have passed on, his father in 1994 and his mother in 2005. The Marquette Police Department has seen many changes. I mentioned that Mike Angeli went from detective to police chief to city manager. George Johnson, who was chief of police in 1988, passed away in 2009. Sal Sarvello, who, along with Hank Steed, led the investigation, eventually was promoted to chief of police, but has since retired. Hank Steed has also retired and is now a pastor at his church. Attorney and author Robert Volker was appointed to the Michigan Supreme Court by Governor G. Menon Williams in 1956. Volker served until 1960 when he stepped down from the bench to focus on fishing and fiction. Volker lived to the ripe old age of 87 and died in 1991. His papers and records are available at Northern Michigan University. I want to point out that Marquette County is a safe place to live. The county had no murders in 2008 or 2009, but 2011 was a particularly dark year with three murders. Something that hasn't changed since Gerard's death is the phone number to the Marquette Police Department. 906-228-0400. If you have information about the murder of Paul Gerard, Detective Sergeant Heslip would like to hear from you. I want to thank Luke Superior for providing the music you hear each week. You can find Luke on SoundCloud. I also want to thank you, the listeners. I am thankful for your support, reviews, comments, and feedback. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can email me, host at alreadygonepodcast.com. You can find me on Twitter, at alreadygonepod. I'm also on Facebook, where you can follow the podcast or join our discussion group. Thank you so much for listening, and please, be safe.
delivery. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One N.A.